I'm Caleb Brown, host of the Cato Daily Podcast. It is December, and I am once again here to ask you to support the Cato Daily Podcast and the broad mission of the Cato Institute by becoming a podcast sponsor. If you support Cato to the tune of $1,000 or more, I'll gladly give you a shout-out on the podcast. The way to do it is to visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor and make your donation. If you prefer, you may designate someone to receive the benefits associated with a donation of any amount. It's up to you. Cato accepts no government money, and we depend on the generosity of our sponsors to help us advance the values of individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor and support the Cato Daily Podcast and the Cato Institute. Thank you. This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, December 28, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. The cost of being poor in the United States is high. And even if you accept the notion that government-run welfare programs are necessary, what are the costs when poverty is defined upward? Jarrett Skorup is with the Mackinac Center. We spoke in Salt Lake City in October. Give us a picture of what welfare in the United States, this sort of constellation of, of programs that we have in the United States, how do they function? What does it cost? What do we get out of it? Sure. So, um, I mean, obviously, just a, a huge amount of, of different programs, I would say, used really inefficiently because while they might be necessary to provide low-income people housing, help for, for preschool or childcare subsidies, um, and for food, it's run through a bureaucracy um, that makes it much more expensive. So there's fights within the bureaucracy to uh, make it easier to, to do that through an expanded, you know, earned income tax credit or essentially instead of the government kind of saying, we really care about providing this thing for people, I would just argue it should be done in a way where we just – we make it easier for low-income people to have access to the money and tr not micromanage how they get it. Or if we want to give them money for housing subsidies, we don't say, all right, the government needs to essentially highly regulate the, the actual housing that they're getting. We should let them figure that out, let the market provide those types of programs. And, and, you know, the longtime uh, libertarian and probably to some extent conservative argument for if we must provide these kinds of benefits – we should really just cut people a check and just let them spend that money if that money must be provided and provide essentially no uh, sets of rules for how people make use of that money. I, I think there's arguments for that. I get – I don't think it's realistic politically. I think just in general, people say, all right, I want to help provide – in, uh, food for low-income children, you can't just give cash to the mom and dad and and expect that they're going to necessarily use it that way. So I think vouchers are kind of a, you know, it kind of hits both those. It provides the money, doesn't go on the bureaucracy. Um, but like, I don't want people to say, okay, here's, we're going to micromanage where every city has to have X amount of low-income housing. Like, we should get out of that business. That 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 incentivizes a bureaucracy and just let give people a certain amount of money and we can talk about what that is and let them figure out what they're housing. And it's not when you when you target uh, portions of a city and say you must have this amount of low-income housing, you're you're, it's sort of a roundabout way of addressing the problem. Exactly. That's exactly it. That's the key. That's the key point. When we hear the the, the horror stories about how hard it is to to make it in the United States, it's pegged to 
you know, how expensive it is to find housing. And in some metropolitan areas, that's definitely true. Uh, in many cases, it probably is driven by things like zoning and things like that. But what do we know about the cost of living in the United States today for low-income people? Yeah, look, so we have pretty good, you know, not perfect, but pretty good measures on who is a family in poverty or people in poverty who need help. And we we give those people benefits. We have for a long time. Um, there's certainly arguments about how, how effective that is. My concern has been that there's been essentially a whole industry um, of groups um, on the left, but also kind of in the middle. Um, so I, I, when, what I'm writing on is, is kind of the United Way and social groups like that who have said, okay, because we've given all these programs to people in poverty, now we're going to give it and, and what does poverty mean? And so United Way has a very expanded definition of poverty that essentially for most states equals people up to the average income in the state. And so then they call for more social programs and welfare spending for uh, people like that and groups like that. Um, the issue has been is that for most of those people, it is it is just as easy to make a living, find jobs, afford housing, afford food, those types of things than it as, ever has been. And so I have a concern of moving moving the goalposts on uh, expanding the definition of people in in poverty. That means that those people are not as incentivized to kind of take care of themselves and move up the the income ladder. So uh, if if you were to redefine poverty or to define poverty in a clear cut way, so the goalposts aren't getting moved. What does it look like? We we have a good definition of poverty now that that limits basically saying how much does food cost in this area, how much does housing, what are the minimal requirements of the amount of money you need to afford those things, and and anything below that we define as poverty and we we subsidize those people. However, over the last uh, thirty years and twenty years in particular, we states uh, more so than the federal government have begun saying, okay, well. Uh, people, uh, we, we, people are choosing to live sometimes in really expensive areas, and so we're expanding um, what they would need for housing, uh, which incentivizes them to continue living there. Um, instead of, uh, you know, so the United Way report, instead of saying how much do people actually need to afford food, they take the average of what people spend on food and then assume that that's what everybody needs to spend on food. The average family of four in this country um, uh, spends $1,000 a month on food. Uh, which is an incredibly high amount. And a lot of that is getting dragged up because you have wealthier families that, you know, just think if, for a lot of people anecdotally of people going to Whole Foods and people spending more on free range or organic and things like that. That's a perfectly valid life choice. Um, but that doesn't mean it's a it's a hundred percent necessary for everybody to be able to do that, but it drags up that average cost of food. Housing is the same way. Um, the average um Housing is about the same percent of what people spend their income as as it was back in 1970, but the average house nowadays is a thousand feet larger than it was in 1970. When I talk to my friends uh, who are perfectly middle class that talk about kind of financial struggles, I bring up that point all the time, and I say, you know, you could go back and buy a 1,200 square foot house. Uh, I live in the kind of the rural Midwest. 1,200 square foot house is going to cost you sixty, seventy thousand dollars. None of my friends are interested in doing that. They they are interested in in buying larger houses, like many people do. A little bit different in cities, um, but I tell my friends that live in cities in, in Washington D.C. and New York. Nobody's holding a gun to your head that you have to live in some of the most expensive places on the planet. And so the basic point on this is I worry that we're 
by expanding that definition of people who need help, it's encouraging people who are perfectly well off, that make perfectly good incomes to say, I need government help and to push for those types of programs. So subsidizing uh, some extravagances that people choose to consume. Yep, exactly right. And, uh, you know, f- food overall, um, if you don't look at those averages, you look at the actual cost to, to buy the minimal food of, of what it, it's cheaper than it ever was of, of than it used to be in, in the early 1900s and 1970s, 1990s, where a lot of people uh, were growing up. Um, healthcare costs, of course, have increased, but not uh, a huge amount, and we're getting much more bang for our buck from that. And then even things like childcare subsidies, which is a big problem in different cities, um, and we can talk about licensing and things that lead to those types of problems. But um, I don't think we should be the government should be subsidizing uh, childcare for up for middle class, upper middle class, and wealthy families because it just drives up the costs for everyone else. There is uh, for childcare for my own children. There is this uh, government program in which. Uh, Childcare providers are encouraged to provide meals or snacks to children who are in their care. Uh, my wife and I are re- reasonably comfortable with our incomes, and we just thought it was kind of strange that this was a, a program that was, we assume, targeted to lower income people to make sure that uh, childcare providers had this benefit for children who would otherwise go hungry. My kids are not going to go hungry. And it's it's odd to see those kinds of programs uh, sort of creep up into our comfortable uh, middle sure. class yeah. uh, lifestyle. Well, and and you know, I my wife will kill me if she ever listens to this podcast. But um, we have a, a similar. My wife, you know, takes her kids around. Uh, we have three three children, and uh, she'll go to take them to parks just in the summertime. And the uh, there's a local program, government program funded, and they provide lunches for kids. And the idea of it is it's supposed to be part of the program where you have low-income kids in school that they provide free and reduced lunch for. But what do we do with those kids in the summer when they're not around? And so the idea is it's supposed to provide food for them through the summer, but there's no income requirements on it and they don't ask anything about it. So, you know, you have uh, my wife who go up there with the kids and it's perfectly available for them to get lunch. And, and of course, if you look at the people who are out at the spray park in Midland, Michigan, where I, where I live, it is not uh, predominantly uh, low-income families that are doing it and it, it's all sorts of other people. And I worry about that, you know, a feeling of entitlement to that and that, yeah, the government should be providing that uh, that type of thing. I was going to ask, what what do you see as the effects of having uh, programs that are designed to ensure welfare for families creeping up income brackets? Yeah. Well, it'll mean, first of all, that the programs will be done worse for families that really need it um, because all things being equal, if you expand it to new people with with less amount of money or equal amounts of money, it's not going to be as concentrated among people. Um, and then second, just more anecdotally, I had a conversation um, with some friends at one point and, and we were talking about a paid parental leave and, and it kind of went into childcare subsidies. And this person, uh, I know their family very well. Uh, I know for a fact that they make uh, um, six figures in the Midwest, which is uh, really significant, um, high amount of money, weight, about twice as much as the average income. And um, we were having this conversation kind of of how government providing childcare and, and this person was a big fan of that. And, you know, during the conversation, I thought, even if government should provide childcare to allow women back into the workforce, people making six figures in the Midwest is the last group they should do it for. I mean, you know, child having children is 
tough and it requires trade-offs and that type of thing. But any dollar we spend for those families is a dollar we're not spending for people that really, really need it. Yeah, it, it's trade-offs seems to be the key uh, issue here. And for low-income people, uh, those trade-offs have much more significant consequences. Uh, and uh, providing some manner of assistance is a reasonable thing to con to be concerned about. But for middle-income families, I I guess my <laughs> thought is, you know, just buck up and make those hard, make those choices. Right. Right. Well, and it's and it's better for society. I mean, I, I think everybody uh, that you would ask that if you if if you talk to people that are older and say, "Do you remember the times when you did make less money when you struggled more?" They all uh, would say, most of them, at least the ones that I've talked to, would say, "Yeah, that was that was pretty tough." Um, however, it led me to where I am today. We learned how to kind of go through that and struggle, and and I think that's good. I think people should have to deal with with trade offs and decisions. Um, and again, I'm not trying to, you know, I feel terrible for, uh, you know, there are single moms, they have kids, uh, they, they've had, uh, they really do have struggles, and they really do need help. And we should try to structure our programs to, you know, you know, require make it so ensure that they are working their way up the income ladder. Um, but we should not be expanding these programs uh, to more and more people that are middle class and, and wealthier, incentivizing them to, to stay on the programs. Jarrett Skorup directs marketing and communications at the Mackinac Center. This month, I've asked listeners to support the Cato Institute, and now it's time to give some shout-outs. Ed Kless, thank you for your support of Cato. Without supporters like you, we couldn't do the work we do promoting liberty. And if you'd like to join the generous Mr. Kless with some support of your own, visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor. And thank you.